There's a great delight, of course, in our ability, in the blessing that's ours to assemble today and gather even as we are. In Psalm 26, verse 8, the psalmist declared, Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. In many ways, those words of the psalmist perhaps echo in our mind to remind us of how wonderful it is that we can meet as freely, as blessedly, and in the tranquility of an hour such as this one. We just prayed, didn't we, that we're thankful that we aren't molested or harassed or there's official interference and we can meet as we are on this Sunday morning. I hope that you have your Bible handy because we'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 4 for at least a portion of our lesson today. In fact, the opening verses of that chapter will be the focus of our lesson as we consider a lesson I've entitled, To Be Received with Thanksgiving. I know well that this is that season we regard and consider as the Thanksgiving season. Maybe you've already met with your family, friends, or perhaps others and enjoyed a time of togetherness and a time of very special occasion. In some ways, that won't be the complete thrust of this lesson, but I would remind each of us that Thanksgiving is an important part of the Word of God. It's frequently mentioned. It's often on the lips of the inspired writers, and today we will at least look at this passage that has much to say about thanksgiving. May I begin it with some of these introductory thoughts, as you can see on that slide. It goes without saying, I think, that thanksgiving is looked upon by different people in somewhat different ways. For many, perhaps it's a day that you're off work. Or maybe it's a day in which you watch a couple of football games or more. And perhaps for some, maybe those elements are very good indeed. But of course, when the Bible discusses Thanksgiving, it isn't talking about football games. And it isn't talking about some of the things that might cross your mind or mine. But the way the Bible does use it would certainly be something that should be a part of our understanding too. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, I give you some idea of the word thankfulness. Thankfulness is a reflection, of course, on one's bountiful blessings in whatever nature those blessings may appear. It may be temporal, it may be on the spiritual side, and certainly today we'll see both. But one thing about it is this passage before us does offer some very interesting wording and things I think that will be very encouraging to your faith and mine. So without any further ado, why don't we give a, a reflection to the passage itself first, and then we'll make a number of applications to, to our lives. May I begin reading in verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now, we'll pause at that point because that forms for us the fullness of the set of verses that we'll consider. And quite frankly, really only the last couple will be the focus of our lesson today. But it does seem rather useful to note the background of the opening three verses. 
Did you notice that as Paul wrote to Timothy, even though this was written again centuries and centuries ago, he pointed out to Timothy very strongly that in the latter days, some are going to depart from the faith. Paul, in essence, made the statement then that at some point, Timothy, in the future from the day it was written, there will be a mass departure of people from the faith. In essence, they're going to begin to follow things that are not true. And he even listed some of the teachings that would be characteristic of what will be followed. May I read them again? Involved in these seducing spirits, involved in these doctrines of devils, verse number 1, will be, number 3, there will be some who will, who will forbid to marry. That is to say, there will be some who will teach it's better to remain unmarried absolutely. A life of celibacy. Not only that, it says there will be some who will give commandment to abstain from meats. Certain kinds of food no longer to be eaten. Certain kinds of matters which otherwise could be eaten, Paul says, are going to be people who are going to teach. You're not supposed to eat that or you must not eat that. He goes on to say this. End of verse number 3. Which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving. So God created this food, this meat, to be received with thanksgiving, and yet men, some group, some particular teaching will, on the other hand, say it's not to be eaten. One of the first things we can certainly conclude, men say many things that God never said. And men will endorse many things that God does not approve. Here's God creating or setting forth something which should be received with thanksgiving, should be received as a wholesome gift and privilege from God, and yet men will have the gall and the nerve to twist what God said, to change it in such a way that they'll teach, not supposed to marry, not supposed to eat this or that. I suppose all of us can think of circumstances even today in which there are religious groups who have done this and who continue to do this. But in the midst of all of that, you'll note again on that slide, there's a very different note which the Word of God sounds so impressively. You already saw the word here, thanksgiving. May I point out again in verse 3 it occurs, and then again in verse 4, specifically the verse 4 verse. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. The holiday that occurs on the fourth Thursday of the month of November every year is, of course, set aside in our land as Thanksgiving Day. This day in which we make it a special remembrance. We make it a special appreciation, perhaps, of the array of blessings we've been given. And I suppose, if we're wise, we'll at least reflect on the source of those things and who gave them to us and who makes them possible. Well, here you'll notice Paul wrote to Timothy well, about 1,900 years ago. And as he did so, in the midst of what false teachings men may say, he said, Timothy, every creature of God is good. Nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. And so, even then, Paul at least pointed out some matters in truth about thanksgiving, and you and I shall try to do the same this morning. As we move into that part of the lesson, though, a couple of last observations on that slide. And one of them is this. The, the powerful theme of thanksgiving 
Isn't it a rich one in the, in the Word of God? Ephesians 5 verse 20 reminds all of us, giving thanks for all things always in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an incredibly broad stroke, isn't it? To be thankful whatever our circumstance, whatever the lot of our life may be, through the character of the Lord. But that verse is only one among others. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18, "...in everything give thanks." Again, that's powerful to have an observation and a note in which we're thankful for what we have. I might say how easy it can become to take things for granted. In the midst of materially so much, in the midst of what is so abundant, it becomes easy, doesn't it? We're all tempted in that way to perhaps be less thankful than we could be for the bountiful matters we've got. Some of the ways that will appear this morning in the passages in the text before us will begin like this. This opening application is such that let's take the phrases one by one and let the Word of God speak to them in some detail. Verse number 4, Every creature of God is good. Doesn't that remind us our God is a good God? He's faithful and true and bountiful and merciful and gracious and loving and kind. And the list goes on and on. He wants literally what is in our best interest. And that's why He commands us relative to what He does. Certain things aren't good for us, and so He commands us not to do them. He forbids them in essence. But on the other hand, let's reflect for a moment on His creation. Do you recall after the six days of creation... And isn't it lovely to think about the character of what's presented on days 1 and 2 and 3 in Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember what was said after the events of day 6? Everything had been made, everything had been ordered and fashioned and put in place, and then the text informs us when God looked on all that He had made, He said, it was very good. Now, in all the previous days, it was merely pointed out it was good. But in combination, in the totality of what was then there, it was very good. Our God does things very good. He doesn't do things half-heartedly. He doesn't do things happenstantially. He doesn't do things on the fly of the moment matter. He prepares and orchestrates and plans. Every creature of God is good. But that might well lead to several questions in your mind and mine. Maybe the first is this. I believe each one of us can readily think of things which appear to be not so good. I'm sure we could make a lengthy list. What then did Paul mean? The context would suggest, and in fact the later parts of the Word of God would lead us to say, everything is good for the purpose for which God made it. May I say that again? Everything is good as long as it's consistent with the purpose for which God made it. The human family can twist and pervert things. Can you and I not think about narcotics, drugs? Those can be used in a way that's noteworthy and positive and good, but there are those who use them in ways that are completely wrong and hurtful 
to themselves and to others. May we again say everything's good as long as it's used in a way consistent with the purpose for which God made it. When man perverts it, when he takes it into a direction and uses it to be harmful or hurtful or in some way disobedient, it has ceased then to be the thing for which God intended it. On the slide, I've listed several examples. You and I can think of alcohol. Now, God made grapes, and aren't they great? They can be used as such a noteworthy part of a wholesome diet. But men in the ancient era learned how to make intoxicating beverage with it. And men have been doing it ever since. All the deaths, the harm, the destruction, the hurtfulness that it's brought, and yet it's continuing to thrive onward. May we say, God never brewed the alcohol, man did it. Now, did God make the ingredients? Sure, you can use barley and rye and these other things which are wonderful. But man can turn them and use them in a way that's not so good. That's not God's fault. Paul again would say, every creature of God is good. And again, reminding us when it's employed and used in a way consistent with the purpose for which God made it. That's a powerful premise, isn't it? For that reason, notice near the bottom of that slide, you and I can think about other matters, not only like those we've just listed. You can think about poison. No, you and I would never ingest poison purposefully. But yet, didn't Paul say, well, every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused. So if someone offers you or me poison, am I supposed to eat it? Well, of course not. That has nothing to do with the premise of the lessons contained in a passage like this one. That poison, again, though the chemicals in it and the matters used in that fashion, it's not intended for that kind of purpose. For again, that contradicts other wonderful passages of the Word of God. As we close this slide, notice what else is also contained in the passage. Because it's time to give some thought to that next phrase. Nothing to be refused. Does that then suggest in some way that if a person offers you or me some particular item or element, whether it's to be ingested or not, must we take it? Must we accept it? Must we then make use of it in some way? I believe we'd be quick to say, surely not. How then do we understand what Paul was saying? On the slide, let's step through that like this. First of all, let's be very clear. This doesn't mean that one must receive and accept and use in the way perhaps the person intended anything someone might offer. We, after all, know some things are evil. They are evil. And by that word, I mean, though that word occurs hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible... It has to do with what's not consistent with what is the will of God. That which, again, is of the devil. That's what evil means. Take the word D off the word devil and you got evil. It is that which is of the devil. It is opposed in some way to the will of God. It's opposed to what His intent is or was. When you think about evil, we know again, as we've already mentioned, there are those, sadly who use drugs inappropriately. That includes alcohol, by the way. 
And there are those that use other particulars of life in a way that is, is damaging and is hurtful. Even tobacco can be used that way. Cigarettes, dipping snuff and otherwise. We know what kind of damage these things can cause and the harm that they bring and what the Word of God has to say about them. But we also realize, so if someone offers me a cigarette, I'm supposed to take it? Paul says nothing to be refused. We'd be quick to appreciate. There were times in the Bible when those who served the Lord did not accept everything offered to them. That is to say, in wisdom and in the understanding of the will of God, they did not accept all that was offered. Look at some of these examples in Matthew 27, 34. Do you recall that scene when in fact the Lord was offered some particular liquid while He Himself was on the cross and He didn't take it? He refused it. Now you might take note that again our Lord was affixed to the cross and you might have thought that He would have no way to refuse it, but He did. He did not accept it. You and I are not in position, you see, to take that which is evil to ingest it or make it a part of our life. That's not the will of God. It was not what Paul asserted. Nothing to be refused has to do, you see, with that particular in which an item, an element, a thing, is being offered in a way that's consistent with the will of God. And in that way is thus being asserted with that character. And isn't that a blessing? So often we have a friends and loved ones and family members and otherwise receive things, sometimes animate, sometimes not. And quite often in wisdom, we should have received it. Maybe we didn't, but we certainly should have. Sometimes that might be good advice. It might be godly counsel. It might be other matters of a tangible character such as that. Nothing to be refused. Near the bottom of that slide, you'll note this. Some things you see are not appropriate due to the influence which not only they may have on us, but which they may well have on others. And Paul reminded the Romans more than once about the danger that comes with that. To that brother who's weak in the faith, Paul said, even though this may not in and of itself be wrong, you don't do it because of the damage and harm it may do to them. Now, there was something being refused. We again see the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And what's being asserted here is not a blanket statement. You have to accept everything that's offered. Maybe one final observation would be this. Sometimes in the refusal of something evil, we can bring about a great note of good for the influence of godliness. That person who witnesses, well, he or she didn't accept that. Maybe that is an affirmation of strength which they too will have the resolve to not give in to such things. The Word of God brings us to point number three. What might be said after these two? It's the language of verse number five. So, so far we've looked at the statements of verse four. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused. As we launch into this next part, note the closing clause to verse number 4, if it be received with thanksgiving. There is an undercurrent and an overarching brilliance of thanksgiving. 
I hope that each of us, not only this season of the year, but all throughout the year, are mindful, and frequently so, about the character of just how good God has been to us. And in many ways, those thoughts will anchor the latter part of the lesson this morning. But with it, why don't we go ahead and note one last part before we revisit that one. Because verse 5 says, For it... Now notice the word it's a pronoun. It refers back in verse 4 to all these creatures which God has fashioned and made and presented for goodness to the human family. He says it is sanctified by the Word of God and prayer. Now maybe that verse offers a new perspective on some of these things, and so let's look at it this way. First of all, the word sanctify. It literally means to set apart. It means to consecrate. It means, you see, to declare as holy. So these items, these blessings that God has made available, they're set apart by the Word of God in prayer. They are consecrated by the Word of God in prayer. Doesn't that then remind us that that which we receive and that which we possess and have, all of these wonderful things are matters that we should appreciate are available to us as wonderful gifts from God. We can't claim we did them. We can't claim that they're due to us. They are a part of what's highlighted. It is set apart by the Word of God in prayer. At this point, a couple of observations, partly based on the Old Testament. You might recall that Every creature has been mentioned here. Think back to the days of the Old Testament. Under the days of the Old Testament, you and I recall there were many kinds of creatures which people could not eat. They were forbidden. In Leviticus chapters 11 and 12, there's a lengthy list of what they could not eat and a pretty short list of what they could. Now, doesn't that remind us even then there was need for discernment and realization that God has decreed these things, though He's made them and though they're available on earth, and though they serve some purpose, it is not for human consumption. That was true then. Wasn't it true? The people of Israel needed to realize God was the absolute truth. And because He said it, that settles it. That particular creature, for instance, many of us love catfish. The Hebrews couldn't eat catfish. Even if they caught one, they couldn't eat it, at least and serve God, because it was not among the list of what they could eat. Maybe that reminds us they had to have an understanding and an appreciation that declared this, because God said it, my faith settles it. I won't eat it, though I might like it, and though it might be favorable, and though it might serve other purposes, because God said it, that's it. Does that characterize you and me today? Because God said it, that's enough. doesn't matter what men may think about it. Again, men are going to claim several things like you can't marry, or they're going to make claims that certain things are not to be eaten, but those are the ideas of men, not God. Maybe that's just one simple example that reminds us of some of those at the bottom of that slide. When you and I do think about food... Maybe at least for a moment, this would be a good time to at least reflect on it. I know we enjoy eating. 
It is really one of the blessings of life, isn't it? Probably for most of us, several times a day we enjoy that activity. And yet, think about how the Word of God at least describes it in connection to the Word of God in prayer. Does the Bible talk about those that ate and the attitude that they had toward it and the characteristic thankfulness that went with it? I recall Jesus on a couple of occasions at least. He fed 5,000 men. And right before that, you recall what He did? He said a word of thanks for it. And when He fed 4,000, again, just a short while later, same thing. Does that at least encourage us to express a note of prayerful thankfulness for the food that we enjoy, for the food that we have? I suppose so. Another example is in Acts 27. You might recall that here in the midst of what was about to be a shipwreck, Paul and those others on board that ship, And yet, as they were in the midst of, about to partake of food, Paul offered a prayer of thanksgiving in the midst of a storm. Does that not at least hint to us that it's the right thing to do to pray for our food and to thank God for it, to be mindful that He is the one that made it available and allowed us to have it? Sure it does. Not only that, could I offer perhaps one more thought? In Acts chapter 10, verses 9 and following, when Peter came to the household of Cornelius, one more time we see a very powerful attitude of thanksgiving, thankfulness, if you will, for not only the food but the other attributes that God had made available. I hope that thanksgiving is a strong part of the people that we are, always happy to remember that it is God that made us, and not we ourselves. Psalm 100 verses 3 and 4 says it exactly that way. At the bottom of that slide, aren't you impressed with Job? That gentleman that we call Job in Job 1 verse 5, you you might recall with me that here was the gentleman that's called the greatest of the East. He was a man who stood in many ways high above his contemporaries a man of faithfulness and dedication, a man who was mindful of the God of heaven. And you recall in verse 5 what he did. On frequent basis, as the patriarch of his family, he would offer prayers of thanksgiving and prayers of mindfulness for himself and for his family. May I suggest what a great example. To think about Job and these others that we've listed that way reminds us that it's important to be a person of thanksgiving. Some of these ideas then present themselves in the particulars that will close our lesson this morning. The last element, the last segment of it. So far we've noted every creature of God is good, nothing to be refused. And then we gave highlight to the fact, sanctified by the Word of God in prayer. But what about the particulars of thanksgiving? I save that till this particular point, and so let's give thought of it like this. There's a little word, if, that occurs in verse number 4. I'm sorry, verse number, yeah, in verse number 4. If it be received with thanksgiving. We all understand the word if is a conditional word. That is to say, it states a condition on which the matter is thus to be discussed. So again, the verse says, Every creature of God is good, 
nothing be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. That would highlight that if you and I aren't sufficiently thankful, if the idea of thanksgiving is not a part then of that which is you and I, then this makes a statement there's something lacking. There's something that's not appropriate and something that's not right. Because we then have no right to receive everything as good and no right to accept it fully in the way that God presented if we're not at least thankful for it. Are we then thankful as we ought to be? The next point on that slide will be this. Acts 14, 17 begins to list a few particulars, and we'll just look at them with, with some brevity. But Acts 14, 17 is Paul there on the first missionary journey. He was preaching so potently, and he made observation. God, who has blessed us with rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, and He has not left Himself without witness. The rain that we enjoy. I know there are times we might prefer it come at a different time. But may we always be careful and realize God's timing is the best. And even matters like rain and the food we have, the fruitful seasons that are ours, may we never forget they are a witness to the one that gave it. May we never forget that truth. In addition to that matter, in Jeremiah 14, 22, even in the days of the, the Old Testament, Jeremiah asked a potent question. It really was about the power of God compared to the power of idolatry. Can an idol give you these foods to eat? Can an idol provide you rain? Can an idol make these other matters? And of course the answer is no, an idol can't do anything. But Jeremiah's point was, look what God has done. Today, your life and mine's filled with things that have such an element of provision, convenience, protection. Many things beyond merely what we need, many things fall into the category of luxuries. And yet God has been so good to us. The next point on that slide, let's transition for a moment into the grandest of all the blessings. So far our focus perhaps often has been on the physical. What about the spiritual ones? Ephesians 1 verse 3 reminds us, Every spiritual blessing is from God. Every one of them. The opportunity to pray and to know that God hears the prayers of His children. The ability to be a child of God. The capacity to appreciate then the reward that comes with having sins forgiven. The forgiveness of sins is a majestic truth. It is something for which we should frequently thank our God in heaven that our sins, whatever they may have been, whatever they currently are, can be remitted. You know, the human family has often, I suppose, desired and longed for those things and often asserted they can happen in a variety of ways, but only the Bible tells us the truth of the way it, that it does take place. Those spiritual blessings include many things, such as the church. May we be thankful for the church of our Lord. There is one body, Ephesians 4.4. 4. And this one body is the one that, of course, is the group of the saved, Ephesians 5.23. The church is thus the thing of which we most must be a part. We can be a part of a lot of things in this life, 
nothing compares in importance to the church. As you and I think today about thankfulness for that, Paul was thankful for the work of the church in 1 Timothy 1.12, for the ongoing capacity and the labor and the good influence brought about by the church of our Lord. May we, in earnestness, feel exactly the same. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. May we be thankful then for all of those godly influences which the word of God endorses, including godly parents, godly siblings, other members of our families who so often have put before us truths, lifelong matters, which in fact are going to be mentioned on the day of eternity. Because after all, whatever is consistent with the Word of God will have a bearing on that noteworthy and grand day. The book of Revelation will have much to say about that in particular. But as we close this lesson this morning, what do we do so like this? We have thought somewhat about Thanksgiving today. We've done so using 1 Timothy 4, the first five verses, as a bit of our principal passage. And in that way, we've said that nothing, every, every creature of God is good, nothing to be refused. We discussed all of those points. But then we highlighted if it be received with thanksgiving. In Colossians 3.12, Paul will say that verse and then the two that follow it, that the element of thanksgiving is a commandment. He told the Colossians, Be ye thankful. May all of us feel exactly the same and understand that that's a wholesome way to live. To understand that those blessings that are ours, both temporal as well as spiritual, are great things from the God of heaven. Today, as you and I consider ourselves, maybe in, from this day forward, if we have not been as thankful as we ought to be, May we say that that thankfulness will without doubt redound into obedience because we'll realize the same God that's so good in that way is so good in so many other ways. And isn't it true that if He has allowed our life to be as good as it is here, what must heaven be like? We'll never know unless in thanksgiving we respond as He has commanded us to in this life. It may well be that someone today needs to respond to the gospel and to do so realizing that there is no other, though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you. Let him be accursed, Galatians 1.8. Today the sweetness of the gospel will never sour. The sweetness of the gospel will never wane. It will be the truth that shall last to the end of time. Today, if someone would wish to respond, perhaps as a wayward child of God, Come back with an attitude to becoming more thankful for that which God has given you and to live a life in responsive faithfulness to those wonderful gifts. You do that, of course, as you come back to Him by way of acknowledging sin as you confess and repent of it. But on the other hand, perhaps someone who has never become a Christian. May I say to this point, you've walked on God's footstool, you've drunk His water, you've breathed His air. Everything you've got is due to Him. Don't you think you ought to thank Him? You do that by becoming a Christian. And then you do that by living that faithful life in Christ. To become a Christian, it's required that you believe in Him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, 
we noticed this morning in Ephesians 5.20 that our thanksgiving must be through the Lord Jesus Christ. But that belief by itself isn't enough because He commanded you must repent of those sins. You can't continue to live in them. Romans 6 verses 1 and 12 remind us of that so strongly. Confess His great name and then be baptized. And today, if we could help you in that way, oh, what a joyful, joyful day it would be. If we could be of some assistance at this moment, we would invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.